Please stand if you are able for a reading from God's holy word. Today's scripture reading is from Esther chapter 2, verses 20 through chapter 3, verses 15. Please read with me the verses in bold. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Tiresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamath Hamadatha, <laughs> and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay much. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people and they do not keep the king's laws. So that is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors all over the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. 
Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. If it's your first time or one of your first times with us, my name is Brad. I'm glad you're here or tuning in online. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, you've joined us in our series that we're calling Unexpected Beauty. The second half of the summer, we're looking at the book of Esther, which is one of two books in the Old Testament named for a woman. And this morning, uh, a sermon called Bad Blood in the third chapter of Esther. Let me read to you some famous words. Two houses, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona where we lay our scene. From ancient grudge break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life. They're famous uh, words. They are the opening lines of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. And uh, the opening lines of Romeo and Juliet let you know that something happened in history long before these two young kids met at a party and fell in love at first sight. In fact, there is an ancient grudge, it says, an ancient grudge between their families. Romeo is a Montague, and Juliet comes from a family called Capulet, and there has been bad blood between Montagues and Capulets, and that means that Romeo and Juliet's love is doomed before it begins. Shakespeare needs you to understand that. He needs you to understand this critical piece of the setting of his tragic romance, or you're going to quickly become confused why everyone is so quickly upset and scandalized by these two kids falling in love, and why everyone is so immediately involved in things that don't seem to concern them, and how things escalate so quickly from a teenage crush to a life-and-death situation. The same is true for the conflict that we encounter this morning between Mordecai and Haman in the third chapter of the book of Esther. Uh, how does a subtle snub from the king so quickly turn into a plan for the genocide of an entire people? And so this morning, a sermon called Bad Blood in three parts. Number one, the ancient grudge between Mordecai and Haman. Number two, a new mutiny between Haman and Mordecai. 
And number three, the star-crossed love of God. An ancient grudge between Haman and Mordecai. As soon as you are introduced, if you're watching Romeo and Juliet or reading it, as soon as you're introduced to Romeo as a Montague and realize that Juliet is a Capulet, you're supposed to understand that there's nothing but trouble ahead. The same is true for Mordecai and Haman. In Hebrew writing, the characteristic described when a character is introduced in the story is usually key to understanding what the author believes their role in the plot is going to be. So, for example, in the New Testament, when we're introduced to someone that we're told or introduced to as a woman caught in adultery, this is not the only thing that can be known about this woman, but we're not told her family name or her occupation because her role in the story that's about to be told doesn't concern those things. This will be a story about how Jesus' mercy and his forgiveness of her unfaithfulness to her husband is the key part of the story. So she's introduced that way. And when Mordecai is introduced in chapter 2, verse 5, which we didn't read this morning, we're not told necessarily that he's a wise man or that he's, uh, his job is to operate in the king's court. Uh, all those, those things are true. What we're told is that he's a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin. And again, when Haman is introduced this morning in uh, chapter 3, verse 1, we don't learn about his hobbies, and we're not told what school he went to to educate himself to be a part of the king's court. Those things might be important. But what we're told is that he is an Agagite. Esther's original audience, those reading this book in the original setting, would immediately understand that there's already bad blood between Mordecai and Haman. There's trouble ahead. Both Mordecai and Haman are from smaller nations that have been conquered and assimilated into the Persian Empire. Haman is an Agagite. Agag was the king of the Amalekites. You can read about him in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And uh, Agag was conquered by a guy named Saul, the first king of Israel. And Saul is of the tribe of Benjamin. So Haman is an Agagite, and Mordecai is from the tribe of Benjamin. These families have a history. The Amalekites had the dubious distinction of being the first people in the world to attack God's people, the Jews, after they were freed from slavery by Moses in Egypt. Uh, they were the first to try to destroy God's people. And because of this, God promised Moses that he would completely erase the memory of the Amalekites from under heaven. You can read about that in Exodus 17. It was a promise that God intended to carry out through Saul, the first king of Israel. Uh, but Saul was disobedient and refused to destroy Agag and, uh, when he had the chance. And so ultimately, there is a back and forth dispute in which these two families have attempted to destroy one another and wipe each other from the face of the earth. The scripture even says that there would be war between the Amalekites and the Jews from generation to generation. So there's an ancient grudge that underlies everything that happens between Haman and Mordecai. An unresolved conflict that the Persian project, right? The Persian empire has this policy of assimilation and re-education and they ignore sort of the history of the people that have come under their rule and they just uh, attempt to reprogram them and then everything will be okay. But somehow 
this assimilation and this re-education has not resolved a generation's old grudge. You can't just ignore it and paper over it. Maybe enough time has passed, you would think, that these two families have simply forgotten about how they literally and quite literally religiously have carried a grudge for generations. Maybe a new philosophy, right? The Persian way will replace all of those old commitments. Um, I think it's clear. I think, my friends, if we learn anything from God's quiet but powerful promise-keeping in the book of Esther, what we'll learn is that it takes God's intervention. It takes his grace to end that kind of commitment, that kind of generational sin. Education alone isn't enough. It's good, but we can't just reprogram prejudice and addiction. Vengeance and vendetta are not a problem of too little information. We have inherited sin from our families. We've inherited sin from our histories. And what we need is not just better information and not just technological improvement, but what we need is to have our, our hearts remade. We need God to change us. And sometimes we don't realize it. Sometimes we can't see it in ourselves. We see it in the people around us, and we can point to it in their lives. Uh, but we don't see it in ourselves. But I think that we can see it pretty blatantly in Mordecai and in the new mutiny that he leads against Haman. A new mutiny in the midst of an ancient grudge. In the first scene in Romeo and Juliet, a guy named Tybalt, who's a Capulet, is so offended that a Montague has shown up and crashed the party that he challenges Romeo to a duel, and by the end of the first scene, two people have died. And the casualties, I would say, obviously, have more to do with an ancient grudge than they do with an uninvited party guest. And so, this morning we learn at the end of Esther chapter 2 that Mordecai played a critical role in foiling an assassination plot against King Ahasuerus. We were even told that the whole thing was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. They told the king about it. He wrote it down. King Ahasuerus now has a file on Mordecai, and it's a, good, it's a pretty good job review, right? He's getting 100. And so it's jolting to read in the very next chapter, in the very next verse, that it's not Mordecai, but it's Haman who receives the promotion from the king. In fact, he not only gets promoted, but we're told that he's given authority over all the other officials and that the king requires that the other officials who were formerly co-workers of Haman now to bow down and pay homage to him. This is something that Mordecai simply will not do. Why? Is it just office politics, right? That was my promotion. I'm jealous and I'm angry and I'm not going to, I'm not going to uh, work on your team. I'm going to ask for a transfer. The text doesn't say that. Um, in fact, some scholars think that there may have been even been years, enough time in between Mordecai's uh, care for the king and Haman's promotion that uh, people wouldn't have even connected that, or maybe it was buried in Mordecai's heart, but 
Others like to compare Mordecai's refusal to bow down to Haman to other stories in the scripture, particularly the story in the book of Daniel where three guys named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to bow down to a pagan idol erected by a king and therefore are thrown into a fiery furnace. But um, there seems to be a big difference between bowing down to a pagan idol and paying respect to someone who's been appointed over you by the king. In fact, we get the indication, it doesn't sound like Mordecai had had issues bowing down to a Persian king uh, or doing some of the other traditions that would have shown reverence and that uh, this may not have been a religious requirement, just a uh, office courtesy. Maybe that's understating it. But there... There seems to be question whether or not we can really say from the text that Mordecai is making some kind of religious stand. Is this faithfulness to his God, to the God of his people from generations? The text doesn't say that. And when you look at the rest of the way that Mordecai has engaged and operated, it calls it into question. It is certainly possible that Mordecai has had a deep uh, conviction in this moment and decided to take a stand for the God of his people. But what we've read before this is that up until this point, he encouraged and he even assisted his cousin Esther's participation in King Ahasuerus's twisted beauty contest slash episode of The Bachelor that Daniel talked about last week. Um, he encouraged and helped her succeed in a contest that would have violated religious, uh, Jewish religious laws and certainly uh, Old Testament sexual morality to say the least. But it seems in that episode that he knew what he was doing and that the, the, what, they could, what he and Esther could gain was worth the sacrifice and worth the assimilation uh, that she would conceal her identity as a Jew and not make known her commitments to the God of Israel. But bowing down to Haman was a different story. In the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, no one was surprised when these three guys took a stand. They had a history of giving witness to the God of Israel. Everyone knew their commitment to Yahweh. Uh, and it's possible, again, that Mordecai had had a sudden change of heart, but uh, it looks from the text like Mordecai's co-workers were confused because he had approved and he had participated in the other parts of the culture. And so verse 3 says, Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them, and they told Haman in order to see what Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them, not that he was upset about office politics, not that uh, he had a deep commitment to the God who is named Yahweh, but that he was a Jew. The only reason the text gives for Mordecai's mutiny is not faithfulness or love to God, but ethnic identity, that he's a Jew. He wasn't, he according to this thinking, didn't think it was worth outing himself or having Esther out them as a Jew um, when it came to participating in the sexualized game show culture of the king's court. But being asked to bow down to an Agagite was too much to ask. Isn't that just like us? 
how we pick and choose when to draw the line. We assimilate and keep quiet when it's most to our advantage not to be perceived as too passionate about this Jesus guy. And then suddenly becoming immovable in, some, in our commitment to Christ when it comes to taking a stand about a particular pet issue. Not that uh, the issue was not worth taking a stand for, but uh, just the inconsistency is what I'm talking about. And the watching world sees that inconsistency. Our neighbors are like Mordecai's co-workers. They can sniff out the difference between a truly held deep heart conviction and when we're just defending ourselves and our own preferences and cloaking it in some kind of religious commitment. I don't think, I don't think that the story in Esther is a story about God's people being faithful and therefore expecting a just reward and a rescue. I think the crisis of this story is whether or not God will be faithful to his promise to protect his people and to provide for them, even when at best they pick and choose what parts of his word to follow. And at worst, they are wholesale unfaithful to their relationship with him in favor of the advantages that they can gain by playing the game of power and playing the game of wealth and pay, playing the game of sexualization in their culture. And Haman gets it. He understands the message that Mordecai is sending. Verse 6 says that he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. His response to Mordecai's mutiny is clearly not proportionate to a personal office snub. He's going big. This is a nod to a generational conflict that has been going on between these two peoples. It's an ancient grudge, and this is his chance. He's not just trying to take down a rival. He instead sets about to use the new position that he's been given to destroy an entire people. Mordecai and all the Jews and finally avenge his own people, right? The Amalekites for the humiliation that they experienced at the hands of Saul an eon ago. So how does one go about planning a state-sponsored genocide against the people of a personal enemy? It, I, I stated it in a sort of a uh, facetious way, but sadly... It happens often enough in human history that there's a playbook, a playbook that includes three of it, at least three of the things that Haman has at his disposal, right? So number one, what you need is a leader powerful enough to do it, and that leader either needs to be evil enough or dumb enough to go along with it. In this case, I think Hazuerus is the latter. He is so self-involved and distracted that Haman can feed him a vague description of a people who refuse to assimilate and that somehow it's unspecifically costing him a lot of money. And uh, he is so self-absorbed that he doesn't bother to ask who this people is or how specifically it is that it's costing him a fortune. He doesn't pursue any of the details about what eliminating them might happen, uh, might 
impact his own life, including the fact that his new queen and his, one of his most trustworthy advisors are a part of that group. He's just not that interesting. Sounds like he's interested in getting to the drinking part of the story. Second, so a powerful leader who's evil or dumb. Number two, financial incentive. They has to, the, the numbers have to work. In this case, Haman promises the king 10,000 talents of silver, which would have been equivalent to between half and two-thirds of the annual Persian tax income. This is a fortune. It's a vast sum of money being promised to a king who has already spent a huge amount of money on a 180-day drinking party that went south and now is, plan uh, now is uh, planning a military campaign against Greece that is also going to cost a fortune. How is he going to pay for it? We can only assume that Haman is planning to pillage the wealth of the Jews that he's going to destroy to pay this crazy bribe to the king. Powerful leaders, either dumb or evil, financial incentive, and finally, Haman needed some kind of moral justification, some kind of theological or ideological conviction that this is something that should be done. And the text tells us that they cast lots to determine uh, if and when this should be carried out. And that sounds to us a lot like they flipped a coin or they rolled some dice. But for Haman, this actually meant that he was consulting the stars, that he was doing some kind of divination, some kind of sorcery in which he was asking the spirit world to guide and affirm his plan. And so it is that by casting lots, the day is set. The 13th day of the 12th month will be the genocide of the Jews, two days after my birthday. But for the star-crossed love of God. We were told at the first sermon in this series that the whole book of Esther is actually the backstory of the celebration of Purim, which is the story of how the Jews were saved from genocide. When Shakespeare called Romeo and Juliet star-crossed lovers, remember that in the, in the prologue? When he called them star-crossed lovers, what he was saying is that the fates were stacked against them. That if you consulted the stars, if you were uh, looking at astrology, that you, would, uh, that you would find that their path had been blocked. That, uh, that their path that their path, that their love had been crossed by this ancient grudge that existed between their families before their birth and that their relationship was doomed before it began. And the same seems to be true in this story for the Jews at this point in the book. It seems uh, that they will, as it were, get what they deserved for abandoning their God. The story in the Old Testament is that they're in exile because they abandoned their faithfulness to their God in Israel and were removed to the Persian Empire. The, the details of the story in Esther is that Mordecai and Esther are, seem to be fully participating in the pagan culture around them. And so is this, will this be a story in which God's people get what they deserve for abandoning their God and becoming like the people around them? 
Well, what is ironic is that God, when we look at it that way, has way more reason to act against the Jews, his own people, who are covenant breakers, than King Ahasuerus really has for acting against the Jews. God has more reason to act against them than King Ahasuerus does. We, God's people, are truly like Mordecai. We have bowed down to so many other things for our own advantage. When it suits us best, we go with the easiest way. Refusing, as it were, to give the God who created us the honor and the glory that he deserves. Refusing to identify ourselves as children of a loving father. As image bearers of a wonderful creator. We choose to stand up only when it's advantageous or convenient for us or when our you know, when our people, our ideology is in power and it's not dangerous. We choose to, well, it, it's actually true in God's case um, that it does not profit him to tolerate our sin and rebellion. He has a right to be angry with us. His anger is just because it's anger that would be against sin. It's anger that would be against rebellion. It's anger that would be against denial. And that kind of anger is what the Bible calls wrath, just anger against evil and sin. And it's probably no mistake that the Persian word, the Persian name Haman, sounds a lot like the Hebrew word for wrath, hemah. In a very real sense, if the Jews were, as Haman has decreed, destroyed, if they were killed, annihilated, and their goods plundered, according to their covenant breaking with their God, they'd be getting what they deserved. But for the star-crossed love of God. Because of God's mercy and love, because he chooses to intervene against fate because God, because the, the stars do not determine what will come to pass. But in fact, there is a loving father and creator sovereignly moving behind all that comes to pass. What Haman has decreed will not be the story for the Jews in Persia. And it is not the story for those who follow Jesus. Instead of handing us over like Ahasuerus handed over the Jews to Haman, God hands over his son, Jesus Christ, in our place. And he gets what we deserve. He's killed, destroyed. He's plundered and has everything that is his taken from him. You see, God doesn't take sin lightly. It's not a nonchalant thing to just wipe away generations of evil by changing the program. The gospel is not a re-education. It is the star-crossed love of God in action, defying the fates and what we deserve. The gospel is not an idea that God hatched when, uh, when his other plans failed. It's not an opportunity that presented himself. He said, oh, here's a fix. We're told that the gospel, that the story of what Christ has done is something that the Father and the Son determined in their power and in their wisdom and in their love before time began. 
It was something that they determined to do, that uh, it was action that Jesus determined to take, that um, Jesus, one man, would take upon himself the consequences of generational sin that we had inherited, and that Jesus' death and resurrection would have redemptive consequences for his whole people across time as they trust in him. That by faith, each of us might experience the grace of God stepping in, stepping in front of fate, stepping in front of what we deserve. That each of us might have our hearts remade by watching Jesus receive what we should have received, what should have been ours. And then instead of letters going out to all of the kingdom in every uh, language of Persia announcing the death of the Jews. Instead, those who believe in Christ become living letters to the world of a loving God. The gospel penetrates and transforms us as we see God's star-crossed love step in front of what we deserve. And uh, as we're transformed, we're sent out to a watching world speaking every language, right? And, and telling the story of not getting what we deserve, but of the star-crossed love of God.